And so here we stand. Our rule is over and it is up to the next class to step into our shoes and take over. I hope that those of you who follow on will carry on a proud legacy. May the lads that follow benefit from the school's work to replicate the hall and the community spirit that undeniably comes from sitting together as one, strength and character of this mighty institution combined. I don't know where it goes from here for any of us, for me, for you, but I wish you the very best in your journey and I thank you all for being part of mine. Wherever we go and whatever we do, may we always be friends when we meet again. Alfred Pedro. Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business. And your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. This is the second week of our 2017 January, folks. We have themed our January around mind, spirit, body and business. And this week we are heading into spirit. Last week was mind and we spoke to the wonderful Professor Lee Waters. What a great show to deal with negativity and getting your head right for the year ahead. This week we talked to a terrific young guy who, you'd have to say, has faced some horrific battles but has come out with a smile and a great attitude on the other side of it. We'll get to him in a second. Before we do that, driving the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show, sitting there with the conductor's hat on. Robbo, how's it going, mate? Going really well, thank you. I, um, I was just listening to you do that intro and I was sitting here thinking, isn't it weird working from home this time of year? Do you, I don't know about you, but I get this feeling like, let's see, some of my mates are back at work, some of them aren't. Should I be working at the moment or should I be on holidays? It's sort of that in between. I've been square in that where you want to be on holidays. Yeah. Because the kids are home for holidays, but then there is stuff happening that you probably should attend to. Yes. Uh, Yeah. I mean, I I think at the moment it's quite a weird period through, I mean, I think through January, a lot more people are taking later holidays in January. Yeah. So it's not really back to business totally probably until the start of Feb, at least especially here in Australia. But, uh, yeah, it is a bit of a weird period at the moment. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is a Mojo Radio Show. I'll be coming to see you. I thought we should play a bit of Survivor. It's sort of apt for today's show, isn't it? It is rather apt. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners around the world would have seen a YouTube clip of a young guy called Jake Bailey. Now, Jake's story went viral in 2016, I think, because at the age of 18, he left his hospital bed in a wheelchair to deliver a rousing valedictorian speech at his graduation. Now, at the time, Jake was going to Christchurch Boys High School and he was considered the senior monitor, which is like the, I don't know, school captain. Only weeks earlier, he'd been diagnosed with cancer and when you hear the story of how this cancer had spread through his body, it was rather horrific. But in a wheelchair, he came out. It was the only time he left the hospital during his treatment to address all of his teammates on their night of, like, graduation. It was an amazing speech. He's a beautiful orator. And that piece of footage, and I'll put a, a link to that actual clip in the show notes that we refer to through the interview. He really was a wonderful speech. I love his writing, and we're very pleased to have Jake Bailey on the line today here at the Mojo Radio Show. Jake, uh, welcome, mate. Hey, thank you very much for having me, guys. We've been um, looking forward to chatting to you because I think of all of the people we've spoken to in the show, your backstory uh, is quite extraordinary. Can you take us through your journey for the last couple of years? Sure. So late last year, I was a student um, doing my final year of schooling at Christchurch Boys High School in New Zealand. 
Um, and I'd been honoured by being chosen to lead the school that year as what we call the senior monitor, but I think you guys might call a school captain or a head student or head prefects. So that was a great year. I was having an incredible time of my life, and that was um, it was very much just a normal year for a teenage boy. I was playing a lot of sport. I was doing my end-of-year exams and my studies, um, spending time with my mates and my girlfriend and my family. And then towards the end of the year, about September, I started having some pain in my jaw um, around my wisdom teeth. And it was just as my wisdom teeth were sort of breaking through, and I assumed that it was it was a complication with that. Um, and I went to the dentist, and he took a scan, and the scan showed that there was um, there was some kind of growth in there. He said it wasn't an abscess, and it wasn't a cyst, but he wasn't quite sure what it was. So... He sent me away to have my teeth removed by a maxillofacial surgeon. Um, and basically, that there was complications throughout that way. The appointment to have the teeth removed was a number of months later originally. Um, but in that time waiting for that appointment, I started to have more issues apart from the pain. I started to lose sensation in the bottom half of my face as the tumours pressed on nerves, um, or as what we would later find out to be tumours pressed on the nerves. I began to vomit up blood. Um, I couldn't eat any solid food because of the pain in my mouth. Uh, I just, I, I basically felt shocking. I never felt any worse in my life. And I got into bed one day and just couldn't get out the next day. So through that process, I was admitted to Christchurch Hospital um, and spent a week in AMAR, which is the acute, um, acute medical assessment unit. And during that time, I had a CT scan, an MRI scan, an ultrasound, a kidney biopsy, um, a bone marrow aspirate, a gum biopsy, and the conclusion of that was that I had a very rare type of cancer called Burkitt's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the fastest growing form of cancer known to man. It doubles in size every 20 to 48 hours. 48 hours. Um, yeah, and so I was... I was very much kind of at a, at a crossroads where it could have gone either way very easily. What was known is that I had to get in and have some pretty serious treatment um, with chemotherapy very quickly in order to increase my chances of making it through. But my hematologist told me that I had you know, I had a pretty good chance of beating it. And I remember being in the bed and her saying, you know, you've got you've got this cancer, um, but we think you've got a pretty good chance of beating it. And I really, really remember thinking. What does she mean? I've got a pretty good chance of beating it. Of course I'm going to beat it. There's no way I'm going to die of this. I think as a teenage guy, you always think you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof. But that meant that I couldn't even process the, the possibility that I was going to die. And I'm, I'm grateful for that in retrospect. So um, I got transferred to the bone marrow transplant unit at Christchurch Hospital. And I began some chemotherapy there. And all the, all the medical side of stuff that comes with treating cancer. Um, but as my as senior monitor at Christchurch Boys High School, I still had my kids' students in the year address to deliver at assembly. So it was something that I knew that I really wanted to do, um, regardless of the situation that I was in now as far as the cancer and as far as the chemo, because I felt so honoured to have been chosen to lead that school, um, and I wanted to finish the year as strong as I'd started it. So... I managed to leave the hospital um, in a wheelchair, and that was that was quite an interesting expedition itself. I mean, there's, there's details for that that I won't go into, but I made made it to prize giving um, and delivered my end of year address to about five or six hundred of the one and a half thousand boys that got in. And from there, it sort of turned into a bit of a media storm. Um, the school had filmed it and posted it online as part of the whole of prize giving, um, but a reporter from Christchurch and a smaller newspaper picked up on it. And from there, it made it Christchurch-wide to national and then received some really unprecedented and hugely unexpected international attention, um, which you know took me on a very interesting path, which has kind of eventually led me to be sitting here talking to you guys right now. The cancer was very aggressive. And I remember you speaking at a ball that I was attending and you went through the list of where it had spread through your body. It was pretty exhaustive, wasn't it? Like you really had cancer throughout your body. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Um, I, I do. I do public speaking for a job and I, I talk about this a lot, but that's one part of my speech I haven't memorised. I can't memorise all the places it was in my body, but I know it was in um, from top to bottom. I think it went brain lining, eye sockets, nasal passages, jaw, um, spine, bone marrow, sort of kidneys, pancreas, um, yeah, that's all I can remember. I think it's most of them. When you're speaking, you talk about those moments of going through treatment. Do you think people really understand what it's like to have cancer? And because being involved with the Tour de Cure, I meet a lot of people and I hear a lot of stories. I just find it, I just wonder whether people can really grasp what it's like to hear those words that you've got cancer and then what it's like to have to face up to it each day. Do you, have you resolved in your mind a way to describe so people could understand what this thing is like? Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's, uh, I can't talk for everyone. It would be really dangerous for me to try and speak to everyone who through it. But I know that in my experience, it was definitely not as grim or as dark as, as people might picture, I mean, people fear cancer so much. I, I have mates that won't even talk about cancer. If they do talk about it, they won't say the word cancer when they talk to me because they can't bring themselves to say it. But the reality is it's not as bad or dark or scary as it might seem. Um, when I was going through it, it was basically just laying in hospital. I mean, the, the reality is you have chemo and you might feel sick, you might not. You might eat for a couple of days, you might not eat for a couple of days. But it's just a matter of getting through each day. Um, it wasn't ever the huge deal that maybe people have it in their mind is um, before they go through it. It wasn't all grum and dim, sitting around, you know, mourning. It was me having great laughs with my family while I was in the hospital. It was me, you know, having heaps of jokes with the nurses. It was most incredible, incredible people I've worked with. Really. Um, it's not as dark as it seems and I think the, the moment people really want to describe is what it's like to know you've been, got cancer what it's like to be told and for me that was um, it wasn't how I would have expected it either when I was told I had cancer I didn't feel anything I didn't feel afraid I didn't feel angry I didn't feel bad I felt um, maybe surprised was probably the biggest emotion uh, that I drew from it but it wasn't as negative and the whole experience wasn't as negative as I probably would have expected it to be or as other people expected to happen. What was the lowest and darkest moment, Jake? Do you remember going through the treatment? And I admire the way you've faced up to it and dealt with it. Was there a, when you reflect on it, was there a particularly dark or low moment during that treatment where you started to think different thoughts to yourself? Um, I never questioned whether I was going to live or die. That was, that was never part of it. I think probably my darkest moment was maybe potentially some of the end of year stuff that I was missing out on. I remember really vividly one night that all of my mates and my girlfriend and her friends were at um, her leavers dinner and there was even like a, a setting, a place set at the table with my name at it and instead I was in a hospital bed. Um, and, I mean, FOMO, fear of missing out, is a terrible thing, but that was, that was on a whole new level, actually. That was probably the worst FOMO I've had, and it was probably the lowest point in my treatment. But I think it's more than made up for all the times I've missed out on, and I think I appreciate all those moments a lot more now that I know that I can miss out on them. You know how people go through these sorts of things, and you've spoken about this, and at that moment they talk about appreciating life, appreciating every day, living the moment. And I suspect that has a big impact on anybody who goes through what you've been through or anything like that, whether it be cancer, another disease, or the loss of a family member or a mate. We, we go to those, those places. When, when you resolve during that time that you are going to live in the moment and appreciate things, do you find yourself sometimes just slipping off the wagon and falling back into what it was like prior to, and if you do, how do you, how do you, or can you bring yourself back to start to appreciate it again? Yeah, um, absolutely, and I, I don't always find it so easy to practice what I preach when it comes to all that stuff. Absolutely, I mean that's um, that's only natural, but mm. 
I think that the further away I get from my diagnosis and my treatment, the more that I begin to realise that cancer isn't massively relevant in my overall story. What I realise is that it's only been expediting things that I, I probably would have learned anyway. And I know now that I'm not grateful for life just because I nearly died, but I'm grateful for it because in the process of that cancer, I met people who did die. And I met children who need three years of chemotherapy and I met families to restore heart from it. And what I learned was that I wasn't unlucky to get cancer. I was lucky to not have something even worse happen to me. Mm. I think what is important to remember is that life has no smooth road for any of us and that as we go down it, you've got to remember that happiness isn't an objective that you seek, but it's actually a talent that you develop through the experiences you go through. It's the ability to bounce back from adversity because some people are crushed by it, whereas others grow from it. So I don't try and you know beat myself up if I feel bad someday or always, if I feel down, you know, remind myself, oh, you could have died away. I think that it's more about building happiness within yourself um, and knowing that you know, you're, you're worthy of it. Your grandmother said a saying that was imprinted on your mind and you said that it's something you reflect on quite often when you're looking at the circumstances behind a situation. Can you share your grandmother's message with us? Sure, yeah. My my grandmother um, was brought up with a saying and a saying which was sort of passed in our family and that was, is it as bad as Auschwitz? And time and time again, the answer will always be no. And I mean, what I say about that is that in, in a, a crass, crude kind of way, that's it's a bit of a relief sometimes because you know that someone out there has had it worse than you and... They've got through it. So, I mean, if, if they can do it, it shows you what you're capable of with the human spirit. The human spirit is stronger than you believe it. Do you journal? I mean, you're actually a beautiful writer. When I see you speak and you are, you've said you've sat in a coffee shop and you've written something that you would use as the basis for your speeches, it's, you, you've got a real talent for writing. Are you a journaler? Do you, are you a natural writer? Do you do a lot of that in your normal day-to-day? Um, I don't, actually. I, I tend to write speeches as, as though I write, um, and even that, I tend to write them um, very last minute most of the time. But I've really enjoyed English and um, history, two two, song, strong, two subjects very strong in writing, of course, um, throughout the school. So I'm not sure. It's always been a passion of mine, but it's not something I indulge on on a regular basis necessarily. Has, it, has the journey changed or strengthened or weakened any of your emotions, Jake? I'm quite curious about the emotions we carry with us. Do you, on reflection, do you think all you've been through in the last couple of years has changed you emotionally? Um, That's a really interesting question, and that's not only one that I've never been asked before. I think it's one that I've probably never asked myself before. And, you know, on reflection, um, yeah, I think... I think my highs are definitely a lot higher now because I've got that added boost of, um, you know, this is where I was a year ago. I mean, just even sitting here talking to you now, I know that exactly where I was one year ago and it was in a hospital bed um, having chemotherapy. So once you start measuring things in life by that standard, um, it makes everything seem a whole lot more rosy. And Mm. I think that I, I probably... I might get through tougher situations a little bit easier now for the same reason. It's easy to compare it to where I've been before and how I've got through that. Um, but fortunately, I don't, I don't tend to face too many of these tough situations, whether that's a, a change of perspective of mine or not, I'm not sure. But I don't complain about much stuff anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> Has it, um, do you think you've drawn more strength as a man from what you've been through? Do you find you feel stronger of mind? Like, you know, you talk about moral strength. Do you think you are stronger of mine now? Um, I think what I draw strength from is the people that I've met um, along the way, the other people I've seen go through what I've gone through and um, some of the people that have been there to help me along the way. I think that, you know, the nurses and the doctors and 
the cleaners and the lunch ladies of the ward, I think, you know, watching them go about how they live their lives, just helping other people and helping their families um, is incredible. And I'm in complete admiration of not only what they do, but how they do it. So I think I draw, I draw strength and, and admiration from, you know, the other people I've seen go through chemotherapy, the people that have it or have had it a hell of a lot tougher than I have or will. Um, yeah. and the people who are there to help them along the way. I'll put a link in the show notes, Jake, to the video you spoke about on YouTube that showed you at the Christchurch Boys High. It was your senior monitor speech, which is once again beautifully written. And what I wanted to ask you about was a lot of your schoolmates got up. They were just off camera. And after you'd finished, they did a haka. And the power, the... It just, it was an amazing piece. It really stopped me in my tracks as I really admired the passion and the power and the energy that your your mates put into the haka. We're kind of in your wheelchair looking at them. I'm curious to know what was going through your mind. What was the what was the default language or audio track going through your mind as you watched those guys do the haka? Oh, I mean, that was um, that was easily the most powerful thing I've experienced in my life. And you know, it's interesting you pick up on that. A lot of people don't, but I think that's probably one of the you know the pivotal moments of my story. Maybe even more so than the speech or you know, the diagnosis or anything, the moment that really stands out in my mind was that acknowledgement by some guys that I really looked up to um, mm. and how much that meant to me. And, yeah, I think it's I think it's a, a pretty incredible thing and I've thanked them all since then for that because that is you know, a huge, huge honour and it meant so much to me and I drew a lot of strength from it um, later on as well. And I'm not, I'm not afraid to admit that um, on the very few occasions that I've watched my speech back, probably many of them more of them forced than voluntary, um, that's the part that makes me cry. That's the part that makes me cry is the haka at the end because that meant so much to me. There's a moment there's a, there's a big guy on the right-hand side, sort of fair-headed guy, and I think he was leading it. And the energy and the, the, the passion that he draws from that, knowing that all the guys are behind him and he's directing the passion to you in a, in a really nice way. You looked at that guy and you looked at those boys, you just shoot, you just nodded your head very slightly and said thank you. Yeah. What, um, what was going through your mind at that moment? Well, that, that passion and the energy is very real because that guy's my cousin. Um, oh, really? Yeah, who, who led the haka and came up and high-fived me at the end. Um, and that was made it even more special. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's a, a very real kind of thing. Well, it's had 1.7 million views <laughs> as, as of uh, last night in watching it, and I would have been the one that got you to 1.7 million watching the whole thing. It's, <laughs> hey, thanks. Uh, it's an, it's an, <laughs> yeah, gee, thanks, mate. Um, it is an extraordinary piece of footage. It's beautifully written, but I, I say to anybody, and it's really interesting, Jake, that I had – been shown it before, it had been played to me, but no one ever plays to that part. Like it always stops after there's kind of a, you know, everybody stands, there's applause and you sort of sit back from your speech and the teacher puts his arm around you. But I'd encourage anybody if they haven't seen it to go back and watch that because that, I think there's so much in that and I think it also shows the passion of the New Zealand culture where that, that, that haka can mean so much and deliver so much in terms of strength and belief and self-esteem it's it's a really beautiful piece do you do you to this day still draw something from that I do I mean I um what that experience did for me I I'm not a massively but at that stage I wasn't a really confident leader um and I went through that school year you know not being sure I thought I, I talked about it in the speech not being sure whether I was deserving of the role um and not being sure of whether I'd done it to the standard that I felt needed to be done to. But that kind of acknowledgement from the guys um, and 
you know, the incredible standing ovation when I'm wheeled out as well. Um, and also later on, much later on in, in the actual full video of the prize giving, they sing, you'll never walk alone to me as well. And uh, things like that were uh, some serious kind of, I don't know, a, a pretty incredible way to change my perspective about how I'd done um, and to see how those guys did you know, care about me um, or admire me or you know, stand up for me was, was amazing. I hadn't planned on going here, but just hearing you say that, if you rewound back to being, being asked to be the, the senior monitor and you had that curious doubt in your mind as to whether it was the right thing to do for you to take on that role, with all you've been through, if I could rewind it back before your diagnosis and you were going to approach that role again, what has that moment with the harker, the boys singing to you, you being able to deliver your speech and you reflecting on what leadership means to you, how would you approach the role in your leadership differently now? Um, I'm not sure. I, I don't think I'd do anything different necessarily. I went through that role with the idea of, you know, if I don't, necessarily know how to do this best well then maybe the best thing to do is just to be myself and I went through that year really genuinely if um, if anything was particularly strong about that it was how I just did it um, as, as, as me because I didn't know how else to do it really um, but I think that what was important to me about that year was that through that, I developed so many connections with some incredible people. Um, I built some incredible relationships with the other prefects, the other monitors that I worked with, 23 other really amazing guys who, I said in my speech, you know, all taught me something and who will all go on to be really incredible people later on in life um, and achieve some really incredible things. So I think that, you know, regardless of how you go into a role like that, you would always draw some pretty amazing things. Has your view on leadership changed? Um, Yeah, I think so. I think that that leadership was that I didn't just want to be a leader when it was easy. I didn't want to be a leader when, you know, you got to do all the fun stuff or have have all the responsibility and power. I wanted to be a leader during the tough times because that's what a true leader is, someone who can make tough decisions during tough times for the benefit of other people. And, you know, I like to think that that's partly what I've learned about it. When you find yourself in a situation today where you're feeling overwhelmed, what do you do? What's your default? What process do you go through when you're just feeling a bit poor? It's a bit, bit overwhelming at the moment. <laughs> I, I probably call mum up and talk to her on the phone or I um, <laughs> go get my girlfriend a hug, actually. I'm, I'm a bit of a softie, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a long way from home and... Um, I'm a bit of a mummy's boy, I suppose, as well. So uh, got to give mum a call and talk it through with her because, you know, mums have that magical power of making things better. Your journey must have had an amazing impact on your family, Jake. What 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 did you take from it? What Could you give advice to someone who's going through this with respect to what their families go through, how to understand it? Like, what's, what's your take on the family part watching someone go through the cancer cancer journey? Um, what I'd say about that is that I have no you know, no qualms about admitting that I'm pretty sure my family and the people around me had a, a hell of a lot tougher than I ever did throughout the process and I was really grateful for the fact that it was me that got cancer and I was the one going through it instead of my mum or my dad or my brother or my sister or my girlfriend or someone that I loved because... You know, I think it would be so much tougher to be in their position. I'd hate to have to sit there and watch someone go through it and not be able to do anything. Um, so what I'd say about that is that, you know, it's important that the person, you know, that said it's important the person going through it doesn't feel um, guilty or uh, like they've done anything wrong. And even though it is really tough on the family, obviously, the most important thing is, is focusing on yourself and getting through Um Family, I'd say just you know, just being there, just spending time. Um, I think what I took away from the experience is that by going through it, I, you know, I, I had some really incredible times with my family. I think that there were moments of 
genuine depth and warmth and connection, which um, me and my family would have missed in the hustle and bustle of daily life if we just hadn't been forced to take a step back. I remember working with a lady who had cervical cancer and she had a picture that she drew and it was essentially her wrapped up in vines of roses and she had visualised the cancer as being like a black crow flying above it, but she was wrapped up in these beautiful roses which wouldn't let the black crow in. And what she was visualising was basically the cancer leaving her body and not coming back again because she was wrapped up and safe. Do you have, given the fact you're talking about, you know, the potential of what, what ideally won't happen but may happen down the track, do you have a visual representation in your mind of what cancer looks like to you and your body? <laughs> How do you ask that? Because... Um, cut back to last year, I had my wisdom teeth removed eventually and when I was in AMAL, the cancer started to grow at the rate it was growing. It started to grow out of my wisdom teeth sockets um, to the point that it was, you know, prying my jaw open. I couldn't close my mouth, but it was also very visible because it was growing into my mouth. So um, cancer, in my case, looks like apparently, because I could see it in the mirror, but um, not very well. So mum took a picture of it with her cell phone. Looks like grey cauliflower, I reckon. It's kind of like grey and lumpy bumpy. Um, so <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a figure, figurative vision in my mind of what cancer looks like. I have a very literal, um, real vision of what cancer looks like. But um, no, to seriously answer the question, I, I don't have... Something like that in my mind. Where I think, you know, what you described was that woman um, is incredibly powerful, and it does make me think. There was a piece that uh, I'll put a link to it on the show notes where you spoke, and you told actually you got a lot of good laughs from the audience. The story of going into a coffee shop and you were ordering a coffee, and the girl said to you, "Have you been in a fight?" And you said, "Oh no, yeah, I yeah. just had." And uh, I won't give the story away, but there is a a mark. On your what uh, right cheek? Uh, yeah, right my cheek? yeah, my right left of your face. Your, your right cheek, and it looks like a, a a dark sort of very low ring under your eye, and yeah. that that's a result of the cancer. Yeah, isn't? so that was where, like I said, I had cancer kind of quite heavily throughout my my face, um, both with my sinuses and my eye socket. So. It's sort of just under under my cheekbone, um, and it's where there was a tumour, and that kind of expanded and sort of I don't know stretched the skin or or something like that. And then once it shrunk, it sort of scarred and darkened around it as as scars sometimes do darken the skin. Do you see it when you look in a mirror and you see Jake Bailey the man? Do you ever see it? And if you do, does it ever? Does anything ever go through your mind? Is it, is, is it a resilience thing? Is it a determination thing? Is it a strength thing? Is it a reflection? Do you ever see it? And does it ever have any, does it ever make you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I'm actually looking in a mirror right now and I can't quite see it because it's in that sort of cheekbone area. It's a little bit of an illusion to me, I think, because it comes under the shadow of my eye anyway. But yeah. Um, it shows up really prominently in videos and photos. I think if you look at the video of the Toyota Cube, it looks quite pronounced. Um, but I, I do definitely catch it in the mirror sometimes, lighting, and it, like I said, it comes up a lot in any photos of me. And I really, really love that. Um, I know a lot of people who go through cancer get tattoos um, as reminders of it or a lot of people who go through um, and have radiation treatment, they really enjoy or really treasure the little marker tattoos that they give them to mark where to give the um, radiation to. So for me, that's my tattoo. That's my reminder of what I've been through. Um, and I'm really grateful for it because, yeah, for me it does it does symbolise and represent a lot of what I've been through. When you wake up in the morning, you roll over and you become conscious of the day, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Um, it's always that I'm not dead, I'm not in a box on the ground, and I'm not in another hospital bed. And that's a really awesome, awesome thing to wake up to because, you know, after, after so many days waking up in hospital or so many days waking up having to go into hospital that day, um, 
I'm, I'm pretty grateful for the alternatives now. This can be framed in lots of different ways, Jake, but do you think you're a spiritual person? Um, I don't know. I put no, I don't know if I'm particularly spiritual. Mm. Um, I, I get that question a lot, and there wasn't necessarily a religious aspect to um, my journey or um, even a spiritual aspect to it. Uh, but, you know, I'd be interested to see how I look back on it in the future and perhaps that might change. It's half time on the Mojo Show and time to pause for a cause. Hello, Mojo Radio listeners. I'm Dr. Alicia Jenkins from Insulin for Life Global. Our charity's mission is to help ease and save the lives of people around the world in disadvantaged countries. So we would like your help to do this by you providing us with any unwanted, in-date, unopened insulin and related diabetes supplies and with the shipping costs. Uh, to get uh, the supplies to the people who really need them. Check us out at www.insulinforlife.org. Thank you. The Mojo Radio Show. Robbo and I have been talking with a number of guests of recent times, and one of the questions that he and I have been throwing around between ourselves, which, which we think is just an interesting way to frame unlocking ideas, when you meet somebody for the first time, typically people say, you know, what do you do? And Robbo and I were talking about when you meet somebody saying, tell me something that we don't know about. Something this person might be, so might be my photographer. What don't we know about photography? This person might work on the buses. Tell us something we don't know about, you know, driving a bus each day. Tell us something that most people don't know or understand about cancer. Oh, um, I think probably the first one I would have said was, I mean, I've already said, so I can't say that, but that's about how, you know, it isn't as, you know, potentially isn't as grim or as dark as it seems, and there's actually a hell of a lot of fun mix in there, and, man, we had so many laughs in the hospital with my whole family in the hospital room, and um, so many laughs with, you know, the nurses coming in in fancy dress for Christmas, and um, all, all of those kind of things. Maybe, what else is there that most people get surprised by? People often ask what chemotherapy feels like. It doesn't feel like anything. Um, and there isn't a really sudden feeling of nausea or a sickness question after having chemotherapy. Um, a thin maybe kind of, kind of thing, and it might come on later during the day or it might not. Um, this is there. It depends on what type of cancer there is. But when I was having chemotherapy in the bone marrow transplant unit, it was... It was very, um, how do I put it? It was like one of the most important parts of the hospital in the sense that it had the highest levels of um, security for bacterial and viral and fungal sort of thing. So it had um, three earlocks that you had to go through to get into my room. You had to sanitise and wash your hands three different times before you'd even you know, get into my room. Uh, it had a big filtered air system that was in there. I don't know. I think there's, there's lots of things about cancer, but... None of them particularly fascinating. Well, I'll tell you something that I think I just found fascinating. I've been, I guess, getting closer to the cancer industry, if we call it that, for the last 10 years. I've never heard anyone ever say we had lots of luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's something that I'm sure, Robbo, you didn't know and I didn't know and I'm pretty close to it. My question on that was, was there a sense of, was there a stigma or a sense of guilt from you or anybody in your room or outsiders watching you laugh to say, mate, you've got cancer, it's not a laughing matter, mate. This is serious. You've got to be serious. <laughs> did, did, because I've never heard it before, Jake. Did that, did that occur to you? Um, <laughs> it, was, it was very much the opposite and I was really grateful for that because um, there absolutely is around a stigma around cancer and it does transfer onto um people with cancer, cancer patients and people going through chemotherapy and that really shows through in a day-to-day basis and I'd always pick up on that but at the same time there was, um, like I said, there was a lot of laughs and there were a lot of people who were willing to disregard that and one of the main ones I was grateful for was my group of friends because after I made a few jokes about it and showed them I didn't take it too seriously, they didn't take it too seriously either and you know, that's all I could have asked for. I couldn't have imagined what it would have been like going through that experience where, you know, not only had 
everything in my life changed as far as where I was and my past and my future, but now all my mates are treating me differently as well. So, I mean, there's a lot of stories that come through with that. There's, there's one story that I always tell and people find it horrifying, but I'll tell you anyway. It was about a week after I'd been diagnosed. It was a couple of days after I'd done my speech. Um, and my mate sent me an acrostic poem, one of those ones where you take the first letter of each word and it spells a message. And the poem went, hold on, pain ends, ignore the sorrow, the errors, regrets made, inspire nations, appreciate life. And when you take the first letter of each word in that, it spells hope it's terminal. And people were horrified by that. <laughs> it was just, it was banter. And it was, I loved it. It was, it was one of my favourite moments throughout of the whole of the story. Um, and I wrote it up on the whiteboard of my hospital room, which, you know, got a few funny looks and people walked in and saw hope it's terminal written up on the wall. But it was, for me, it was the epitome of, you know, a bunch of 18-year-old guys not treating each other any differently just because someone had had something happen to them. Um, and that meant so much to me. It was, people would send me cards with um, hilarious things about, about cancer and joking about, you know, your star signs and Leo, I didn't think you were a cancer and all this kind of stuff. There was, there was a huge amount of banter that went on around. And there still is huge amounts of banter that go on from it now. I still get... Uh, time I played a game of football with some of my mates um, for one of their teams when I was back a few months ago, and I ran onto the pitch and someone shouted out, "Are you the Starship Make a Wish kid?" Um, <laughs> so guys have Do you have the Make a Wish kids? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there you go. So I, I still, I absolutely pop it. <laughs> it's funny though, Jake. I remember some years ago, and you may have seen this book on the Tour de Kill, but I wrote a book with a guy called Marty Wilson, and the book was called "What I Wish You About Cancer." And I sat in a coffee shop in Neutral Bay with a guy called Daniel Walters, and his name was, we called him Dougie, Dougie Walters. And he had testicular cancer in his chest. And, yeah, he only knew that he had it is because he couldn't breathe. And as the cancer got bigger, it pushed on his heart and started sort of compressing his heart. And it was a rare form of testicular cancer but he had in his chest. So he had to have an operation. Now he got this beautiful zipper down his chest. When I said to him what do you wish your mates knew about cancer? He said the same thing. He said, I didn't want people asking me how my treatment was going, how I was feeling, how's chemo. He said, I just wanted to know that they got pissed on with rain on the way to work today or the boss screamed at them or that they bought a cup of coffee and it was burnt and it, was, it tasted. He said, I just wanted to hear the normal life. I just wanted to hear their normal stuff and not focus on me, my treatment, the hospital, what I was going through. So, and he was a guy who was, you know, maybe 30, 32, and he said the same thing. And I think this stigma, approaching it with a sense of humour, which Camp Quality talk about, you know, laughter is the medicine. And what you're saying is a great lesson for us to take away. I just feel as though some people would feel guilty. I mean, your young mates taking the piss and stuff, 10 for on bulletproof, because I know you so well. But I think for a lot of other people, we worry about that that the person with cancer thinks it has to be taken seriously and so does the people around them. So I think it's a, it's a really powerful message to take out, mate. Yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's a pretty fine line and uh, it's obviously different with the 18-year-old guys and, and such as well. But I, I, I think it's probably up to the cancer patient to sort of take the lead on that. And like I said, I made, I was the one that was leading the jokes. I was the one that was started the banter and... Um, I was a pretty easy target as well because I had no hair or eyebrows, of course, which makes you be pretty susceptible to insults. So, um, yeah, I'm, I've always been someone that's been big on laughing their way through tough times. Uh, it's the way that I've been brought up. So that was a massive part of the journey for me and I think there was something that helped, that has helped so much. Just uh, one final question before we let you go, mate. It just came from something you said before. You said that when you had your bone marrow transplant, we had to go through three different lots of isolation to get to you. And I suspect in the actual room you're in, it would have been vacuum sealed, completely sterile. And you would have had a lot of time lying there by yourself thinking and contemplating. Did you find that during this time where you had to spend a lot of time by yourself in bed, either in isolation or in a hospital room, did your sense of reflection and self-introspection 
did that, did that heighten in your own mind? Because the reason I asked the question, I'm so interested because we live in a super distracted, super busy, multitasking world where the minute we have a moment to ourselves to think and reflect, we grab our phones or our iPads. Has that heightened your desirability to sit quietly and reflect and to think and to contemplate? Yeah, sure. Just, just to correct first, it wasn't um, a bone marrow transplant. It's quite a deceptive name because it's called the bone marrow transplant unit, but I didn't actually receive one. That was that was just the room that I was in for um, probably three quarters of my chemotherapy. But yeah, it was um, it was a, a really surreal experience to spend you know so much time just laying in bed with your own thoughts. Um, and I'm, I'm talking, you know, three months of laying there thinking about life and thinking about death and thinking about, you know, your future and, and what you want to make of it if you get to reach that. And I was really grateful for that. I think that's something which has helped me process all the events that I went through so much better was the fact that, you know, I was forced to sit with them. I really learned about, um, about sitting with emotion and that's something I've, I've learned through school and I've been told by my parents is really important in life to just be able to sit with emotion, to be able to feel uncomfortable or angry or sad, but not necessarily have to respond to the emotion, um, to be able to just not that you feel that way and cope with it. And, yeah, I think that it was a, it was a completely different experience because of that. I think that if I had been, you know, out and about and living a normal life, it would have been really difficult to, kind of looking back, to kind of differentiate between the times before cancer and the times during, in the sense that I was happy to go into hospital and spend a lot of time in there and get this bad part of my life over. And then, you know, return out to the big wide world, which is where, you know, I'd spent the years before and it's been great and I've seen life now and it's been good. Is, is it a skill now that you think you've developed, Jake? Can you... Can you, on a daily basis, feel very comfortable doing nothing yeah. and contemplating? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, I deliberately take time to, you know, sit down and and think for, you know, a good couple of hours a week, hopefully an hour a day at least. Um, and I think that that changes your outlook on life a lot. It helps me process emotion and it helps me process, you know, thoughts and it helps me sort of understand more about, this whirlwind that I've been swept into over the past 12 months um, and, and where it's going to take me in the future. When you're talking with, say, school children, and I suspect that is you know, an important part of what you do given your popularity on YouTube with your high school mates, what's the message you want to leave? If children hear you speak for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, you walk away, if there's one thing, that you want kids to walk away with, what would that message be? Um, I think that if I had have been told by another teenage guy about, you know, about how delicately balanced your whole world is around you, it would have made me understand it a lot better than, I don't know, ads on TV for canteen or when you go out in public and you see someone with a beanie on and you think, oh, they've got cancer. I mean, I wasn't ever going to be the kid that got cancer. I was always at Musty Day giving my $2 coin, you know, gold coin donation to the cancer charity. Um, I was always, you know, playing sport and being fit and all that. And if someone had told me that I'd go from that life of doing my final year of school, being my head, being head boy at school, um, doing my studies, hanging out with my mates, my family, my girlfriends, and then just one, one week later, one week, I would have been in hospital fighting for my life. I couldn't have believed that. Mm. But I think I would have had a better chance of believing it if, you know, if someone my age had come up to me and said, look, I'm just like you, and it's happened to me. And I think that would have made me appreciate each day a lot more. I mean, that, that's, that's the one thing I want to spread is the ability to appreciate each day because, because it makes such a big difference your life, the way that you, your outlook on life completely changes the outcome of your life. It's the one string that you have to play on in life is the way that you react to things that happen to you and the way that you view things that happen to you. You can't change the past. You can't change the future. You can't change what other people do. 
all you can change is the way that you react and the way that you feel about it. Have you had the same girlfriend through the whole journey? Yeah, so I met my girlfriend um, late last year as well, and we started dating 10 days before I got diagnosed. Oh, um, no. Welcome what? to my life. Yeah, and so I called her into the hospital room the day after I've been diagnosed, and I said, like, this isn't fear on you, and this isn't what you signed up for. So what you need to do is you need to walk out of here and not look back. You need to run for the hills because it's going to get really messy and really bad really fast, and you don't deserve that. Um, I won't blame you for it. No one's going to blame you for it because they'll understand the situation. But, you know, you need to save yourself, so just get out of here. And she just sat inside the hospital bed and said, no, we'll get through this together. And the rest is history. Well, she's a keeper, mate. Mate, she's a keeper. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm going to get you to hallucinate here, Jake, or maybe you even know it. If I spoke to your girlfriend, who's been now through this incredible journey, I mean, 10 days in, hearing the news, being by your side as a great supporter. If I spoke to her and said, what is the biggest change that she would have seen in you, as in, yes, we're going to go out 10 days later, you're diagnosed, to now being a year or so down the track and being in remission. What do you think she'd say? <laughs> we, we actually joke about that a lot because the thing is that we, 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 we're not quite sure how much we knew about each other <laughs> you know, on a personal level before we started dating. Um, yeah, yeah. And obviously with the whole experience, it was being left in that really vulnerable and weak position meant that I had to open up to her really quickly. And I mean, there's no better way to be humbled than for you to lose your hair and your eyebrows in front of the girl you've been dating for 10 days and then look like look like you've got no hair and no eyebrows. But I think, I think probably... If there's any changes that you could have seen, I, like I said, I'm a lot more laid back now. Um, and I definitely have, have developed more of an ability to take things as they come. Well, I can tell everybody listening around the world that I have met Jake a number of times face-to-face. He is walking the talk. If you ever get the opportunity to see him speak live, he's a beautiful, what's the right word, Robo orator? Orator is the word, yes. Orator. Yes. Uh, it's a very big word for the Mojo Radio Show to use. Yes, exactly. Um, but you are a, a beautiful writer. Your speeches are great. I think the message you're sending is is absolutely very noble. And there's no question, Jake, that with the work you're doing now, so soon after what you've been through, I can guarantee that you are having an impact on people and you are making people think. Now, whether they pursue that, Jake, and keep it going, that's the next <laughs> part of that's the next part of the challenge, isn't it? So they wake up in the morning. Yeah. Day after day, like you say, it's hard, you know. But I, I can honestly tell you, mate, you can uh, you can rest assured when you look in the mirror, you are impacting people. It's a great story. You write beautifully. Your message is great. And, um, mate, it's been a real treat being able to sort of spend some time with you and dig into your story and ask you things that have been going in the back of my mind since I've seen you speak a number of times now. So uh, thank you, buddy. Mm. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a huge honour and um, those are very kind things you say. So cheers, guys. Before you go, I've got two big questions this week. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> look out! Look out! This is going to be all black related. For no, no, sure. no. There's no, no. There's no all black related questions sure. here at all. It's actually, it's actually grey related. I'm wondering, once you'd finished your radiation therapy and while your hair and eyebrows were growing back, so you had no hair and no eyebrows, I was wondering if you were ever tempted to put on a grey suit, sit in a chair with a hairless dog, and stick your little pinky in your mouth and have a photo taken. Oh <laughs> <laughs> okay, you are no more coffee for you today. You are cut off. You are cut off. You are a ca- you're caffeine overloaded. It, it, it makes me sad. I just wish I had done it now. I've really missed the opportunity. <laughs> I just thought it would have been a great picture to send all your mates while you're on your way to recovery. That's ridiculous. <laughs> the second and more important question that I have is um, on those days when you were feeling a bit down, and you needed your mojo picking up, was there a track that you stuck on your iPod to uh, to get yourself pumped up and meet the day? Um, I don't think so. I wasn't. I didn't actually listen to a huge amount of music when I was in hospital, right. which was weird because I know a lot of the other patients did, but I think I got sick of the music that was on my phone pretty quickly mm. and the internet within the hospital was pretty dodgy, so <laughs> I don't know actually had the ability to get any new music. But actually, no, one, an interesting thing is there was the TV in the room, of course, and on the TV there was um, The Edge, which is a big radio station back in New Zealand, and they have their music channel, um, sort of like MTV in a way, and 
that was on a lot of the time. And one song that always, always takes me back to being in that hospital room it is um, Sorry by Justin Bieber, which came out about that time. Is it too late now to say sorry? Because I'm missing more than just your body. Oh, is it too late now to say sorry? Yeah, I know all that I let you down. Is it too late to say sorry now? Holy shit, how sad is that? Never had that before in the Mojo Raider show. <laughs> the beep stuff. The beep stuff. I'm not a beebernator, but I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm with you. If it works for you, Jack. Uh, it got me through. Oh, he's touring next year, mate, so you'll get your chance to go catch him live. <laughs> well, uh, it's been an inspiration talking to you, mate. Thanks so much for your time. No, no, no problem at all. Thank you so much for having me again, guys. Um, yeah, it's great that we got it done. This is a test of the Mojo broadcast system, the Mojo Radio Show. You know, Robbo, the, the nice thing about a guy like Jake is that I saw the clip on YouTube and then I got to meet him and we've actually spent a little bit of time together over the last 12 months at different events. And I recently I met with him at a, a cocktail function at the Garvin Institute and we spent a good deal of time talking after our interview. And uh, I've got to say as, a, as an ambassador for survival, as an ambassador for fronting up, as an ambassador for being of service, Jake Bailey really is top, top guy. Yeah. That story is just incredible, isn't it? To, to go through all that and to come out the other side as positive as he is, that's an inspiring way to start 2017 indeed. Yeah, I think it helps. Uh, I think last week with uh, Professor Lee Waters got our mind right, but uh, certainly that guy has got a wonderful spirit, which just gives us something to think about, something to reflect upon for our year ahead. Uh as we move through the show, I believe you've got a little bit of a uh, 20 cents worth for us today. Robbo's 20 cents worth. So as you know, I'm not shy of the odd taco, right? Oh, I think we all love a good taco. We all love a good taco, but there is a bit of a stigma attached to them in terms of our, uh, what it does for our health. Taco Bell don't exist here in Australia as yet. I'm sure they will at some stage. However, in the States, they have had a new nutritionist that's joined the company and she's taken on the challenge of making their food a bit more healthy for us. Well, a lot more healthy. What she's done is she's come up with a new menu that she's called the Fresco menu. What they've done is they've taken out the salt and artificial ingredients. They've started using cage-free eggs, uh, what they describe as lighter options. On top of all that, they've also made a 15% reduction of salt across all their menu items. Now, in and of itself, that's really good. But what struck me about this story was a quote from Taco Bell spokesman Alec Boyle, who said, us touting ourselves as a health halo, it's not authentic and it's not real. So I thought of thought, that's nice in a way that they're just doing this under the radar in the hope that they're doing something for the betterment of the community. Yeah, it's, it's, it goes back to something that's been a bit of a thread for us probably for the last six months, certainly since Rocktober where we talk about being of service. And when a brand stops thinking primarily about sales and look at a greater purpose of being of service, profits, revenues, and margins tend to follow. So, I mean, the proof's in the pudding because we, we do hear these things and we do see these things from time to time. But if Taco Bell are serious about it, it'll be a long-term play with a long-term dream and a long-term purpose. But I think it's also important for us to say hello to all our friends in Mexico who are listening, who do love their tacos, <laughs> and our good friends at Corona. Mm, fish tacos for lunch. I think that's on the menu. The Mojo Radio Show. I need, I need a music bed. Do you have any, uh, how about a bit of Toto? Bit of Toto, Africa? How's this? Excellent. Uh, there was a book which became very famous amongst runners and ultra runners and trail runners written by a guy called Christopher McDougall. The book was called Born to Run, A Hidden Tribe, Super Athletes and the Greatest Race the World Has Never Seen. This is a very famous race that only people who are interested in ultra running or trail running or mountain running will know of. The book became very, very popular and it was about a tribe who 
their whole culture was based about running and they'd run in handmade sandals and the best runners in the world would travel to this very remote place in Africa and they would race. And I love the book. You don't have to be a runner to appreciate the stories and the fables behind it. When I heard Professor Lee Waters in last week's show refer to the Serengeti, it made me think of a piece that was in the book by Christopher McDougall in Born to Run, and he said, Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must outrun the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning in Africa, a lion wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the slowest gazelle or it will starve. It doesn't matter whether you're a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. That quote I read a number of years ago in this book, which I love, and I just think people need to think about that when they get out of bed in the morning. Late nights, bad diet, bad sleeping habits, A lot of people are struggling with sleep and they're rolling out of bed and they're exhausted before the day starts. But those that are really setting up for a great 2017, think about the morning, the night before. They're playing, they're set, they eat well, they rest well, they've got their evening routines. And I love that idea. Wake wake up in the morning, no matter what you're doing, you better be running. Not bad. Not bad at all. I've got a bit of a joke that goes with that. Do you want to hear it? As long as I'm not going to bring my segment down. (laughs) There's a couple of wildlife photographers in the Serengeti hiding behind some bushes taking some photos of a pride of lions and they're all eating a zebra that they've caught and the male lion looks up, starts looking in their direction and roaring and starts keep staring at them, keep staring at them and one of the photographers puts down his camera, opens up his backpack, takes off his hiking boots and puts on a pair of Nikes. The other guy says, you'll never outrun that lion no matter what you're wearing and the other photographer says, well... The line, mate, as long as I can outrun you, I'm okay. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. All right. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. Pop quiz, hot shot to take us at the back of the show. All right, here we go. Questions without notice. Name the band, name the song. Go. No, I'll stand my ground, won't be turned around. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down. Going to stand my ground. Well, I know what's right. I've got just one life in a world that keeps on pushing me around. But I'll stand my ground and I won't back down. Tom Petty won't back down. Oh, nice. (laughs) And that's our takeout for today. I thought listening to Jake Bailey talk about lying in bed and facing up to cancer and not giving into it and being able to find a smile and a laugh in amongst the dark and the grey. I thought that we should take ourselves out today with Tom Petty, the Heartbreakers. I won't back down. Love it. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.